Well done. That was good. Had a little uh, gap, but we had to, we were able to relaunch the Centralia Sticks team. The girls are getting ready for, um, for the teams will be going to a main event, a, a district event coming up this next week, and they have prepared for that. Uh, I love it. Thank you, girls. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, if you would get those out, turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, we are we're a second week now into Lent, and uh, the series is, is Lead Me to the Cross, and so during the time of Lent, we take intentional steps on our journey towards Easter, and one of the one of the metaphors that we, that we often use in making that journey or in the, you know, just the Christian faith in, in general is we're kind of on a journey from darkness to light. Gospel writers, especially John, uses that metaphor all the time. And so if you think about uh, Easter, well, Jesus came, he had his earthly ministry, he ended up dead and in a grave. I would say that's pretty dark. And the journey of Easter, the celebration of Easter is God's triumph, Jesus' triumph over death in victory uh, when he rose from the dead, and that would be light. So in miniature, the Easter story is, is darkness to light. And when you think about the journey of, of each of our lives, uh, there's a point where we don't know the gospel message, that we uh, you know, are just living in, inside ourselves, we're kind of bent and turned in, and, uh, and, and I would say that that can be a dark place. And as we discover Jesus, as his message works its way in, as the Holy Spirit uh, enters our lives, it brings us new light. And so there's a journey from darkness on the one hand to the light of Easter, the light of Jesus resurrecting and breathing new life into each and every one of us. And so I, I wanted to read a story. It's in the early chapters of John, John uh, chapter 3, if you, if you have your Bible. Uh, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, is part of our text today. And I'll admit, it's a little intimidating to, you know, what, what more could be said about John 3.16. Uh, as you listen to this story, this is the, the beginning of a journey of, of one man's uh, working his way from darkness into light. And so here's the words of, of John, chapter 3. He says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Have you heard that phrase before? Are you born again? Nicodemus was the first person ever to hear that. 
How, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are, well, I won't, even, I won't even count. I won't even venture a guess on the number of different sermons that one could preach out of a rich text like this. I changed my mind, oh, three or four times this week, just trying to think and, and listen. And I... Uh, I wanted to tell you two parallel stories. I have a friend whose name is Victor. Now, I don't, I don't know where Victor is at, at this point. He entered into my life um, back when we were ministering in, in Illinois, and one of the buildings that our church met in, we had a we had a company that came in and did custodial care for us, and Victor was one of the janitors that, that did work in our church. Yeah, he's probably in his late 50s, early 60s. He's a short, wiry guy, very kind, inquisitive. Had no faith background at all, none. So he found it rather peculiar that he was working uh, in a church. He, he would come in, he would ask me questions all the time. Uh, he was particularly curious about a, a couple things. One, he really wanted to know why we had a cross hanging on the wall. What does that mean? And the longer that he stayed with us, he had the opportunity to observe what we did on Sunday mornings. And, and of course, he would come in after service and he would be the one to, 
to clean up and pick up bulletins and papers and and every the, the weeks that we had communion really you know he got him thinking like what what are these little you know plastic cups you know with looks like some kind of juice or something remnants in the bottom and 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 he saw you know how we set it up and like what are you know what are those little you know dry tasteless wafers that that you folks munch on during I mean what is this is it are you serving snacks or he he's not a person of faith he doesn't know these are really good questions why do you have a cross what is this with this little these little shot glasses and wafers what what's that all about this is a frame of reference then then he was curious about the, these benches in the front he liked to set his work stuff on them and i would always move it like you know these are more of a sacred space well what does that mean and i would tell him that that these altars were a place where people could come and and just intentionally kneel down in the presence of a worshiping body and, and pray and just have moments alone where if you want to call it doing business with God, th th these are wonderful places to do that. But he was curious, why, you know, what are the benches up front for? But he, what really got his attention is on our platform, oh, right about here. There were two removable panels in the floor. And the first time that we removed those panels, he was enamored with what he saw. It was, we had a baptistry in, built into the floor of the platform. He couldn't figure that one out. Because I wasn't there when, when he was there cleaning and I came in, and, and he, was just, he was just standing there like this. Because it was one of the baptistries that had, it had these, um, it flowed the water in and out and heated the water. And so there was a little current in it. And he's just staring at it. He's like, Pastor Dave, why do you have a jacuzzi on the platform? <laughs> What's this all about? So I, you know, had a conversation about baptism with him. He just shook his head. I don't, I don't get it. But he was so curious about it, so excited about this find in the floor that the next time that I came to work, he was, he was up there standing, but he had somebody else. He brought his 80-year-old mom to come see the jacuzzi at the church. <laughs> Crosses communion supplies, benches that people would kneel down in front of, a, a hot tub on the platform. Didn't, didn't really make sense to him. They were places that we might say he was in the dark. But he was so curious about them that he, he asked questions. And he didn't dismiss anything that I said. It was, huh, tell me a little bit more. Sounds like Nicodemus to me. And Nicodemus was, we learned that he was a Pharisee. 
He only shows up three times in the entire biblical narrative, all in the Gospel of John. This story that we just read is the longest. Uh, a little bit later on, uh, he is one that wants to ensure that, that Jesus gets a fair hearing before his peers. And then when Jesus is being buried, he and Joseph of Arimathea, who, who donated the tomb, uh, Nicodemus was the one who provided the burial spices, like 70 pounds of spices. So we, we know he's a prominent person in the community. Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, not a teacher, like the teacher. Like, this is a smart guy, prominent. Uh, he's wealthy. And he's of this class of people that, that all the rest of the people in the land would, would look, look up to a person like Nicodemus for guidance, for instruction. They would learn Torah from this guy. For some reason, he's in the dark. Just before the episode that we read, if you back it up into the end of chapter 2, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, and he had come into Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and he saw that they were misusing the temple, that they were, the religious leaders were making a practice of, of trying to profit from people's sacrifices and their pilgrimage into Jerusalem, and it it just welled up this righteous anger in Jesus, and he levels the tables, and he gets this whip, and he, he just drives these people out. You, why are you turning this place that's designed for prayer and for worship and for sacrifice, why are you changing this place into a den of thieves? So I imagine Nicodemus either saw this or heard about it, and he had had obviously heard Jesus teach based on the comment, the statement that he makes to Jesus. And he was hearing something that caused him to ask questions. Maybe, maybe I need more information from this Jesus character. So he approaches Jesus at night, after dark. I like thinking it was around midnight. I don't know why. The text doesn't say that, but after dark. So John portrays this conversation as a physical representation of Nicodemus's in the dark. That's when he goes to see Jesus, and he has, Jesus has this conversation, and he begins to have light dawn in, in his life. Now, why did he go after dark? Well, maybe he was afraid, afraid of what other people might think. Maybe he was just trying to be cautious. Maybe he's trying to hide. Rabbis taught that the best time to study Scripture was at the end of the day. So after all of the busyness of the day had subsided, that's when you kind of sank into studying the Word. So maybe this was him thinking, okay, uh, this is a good time of day. The rest of the day has subsided. I can focus and concentrate. I'm going to go talk to Jesus. Maybe it's just when Jesus had a free moment. You know, Jesus was a busy guy, teaching and healing and um, going around town and, and um, always had people surrounding him. Maybe, maybe this was a moment where Nicodemus thought, I can, I can have a private 
conversation with Jesus. So he goes and makes his inquiry. Of course, he doesn't start off with a question. He just makes a kind of a general statement. Both Victor and Nicodemus, Vic and Nick, hey, this was the original Nick at night, I guess, right? Um, they recognized, Nicodemus recognized that Jesus was a teacher from God, that nobody could perform the kind of signs and miracles and, and things that Jesus was doing if God wasn't with him. So he says, tell me more. Jesus responds with words about being born again. Being born of both water and spirit. He talked about the wind. He talked about you know, how Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. I mean, this kind of sounds like, well, why do you have a cross on the wall and a jacuzzi in the floor and all the benches down here? And what, is, what is that all about? Why? Jesus used some words, some lingo that just didn't make sense to him. It was confusing. He was curious. I'm not sure that's what Nicodemus was actually wondering about. I think he just wanted some answers, some clarity. He had seen these signs in the teaching, but it, and it challenged his understanding, and so it, it, it started to call into question the whole structure, the, his whole foundation of belief. Jesus was kind of like he did to the temple. was kind of turning it upside down. Made him a little uncomfortable. Well, I mean, I've staked my life on all of this, and I hear you saying this, Jesus, and you got to you got to fill me in on this. Victor didn't understand the religious symbols. I get it. I mean, if we're really honest as people who go to church, practice a religion, we're really guilty of, of using words sometimes without explaining them and just assuming that everybody understands because we understand. And if... I've ever done that. I just want to say I'm sorry. I, I want to be a person who practices using a word, and if it's one of those 50-cent religious words, I want to explain it. Our practices don't really make sense to people who don't have a foundation of faith, who don't have an experience with Jesus, who haven't grown up. Somebody like Victor comes in and sits through what we do, sometimes it creates more questions than it answers. Victor didn't know why we had the jacuzzi on the platform. And when I talked to him about baptism, he, you know, he's just, his wheels started turning. And, and he's like, why would, why would you want to you know, get dunked with all your clothes on, clothes on in public? I mean, what's, while people are watching, what's the point of that? See, the visible representation of, of what we do doesn't always translate until that we explain the, the backstory and the significance and the life change that goes along with believing and serving this person that we, that we call Jesus. I mean, the cross hanging on the wall, he wanted to make sure we weren't still using it. It's okay, you can laugh. <laughs> 
Our language sometimes seems a little cryptic, um, sometimes weird, unless you understand the story. Nicodemus, he was a smart guy. Uh, I think that he really suspected that Jesus could be the Messiah. That he could be the one that God had promised for hundreds of years. Except Jesus didn't look like the person that they were expecting. Jesus came healing and teaching and ministering to the poor and loving and showing the love of God to people. And the people were expecting a gallant, strong, powerful military leader who would come in and take charge and, and restore the throne of David and kick out the Romans and, and make sure that, the, that right worship was happening in the, in the temple. And, and Jesus didn't kind of fit the description of, of what they were looking for, but there was something in what Jesus was doing that made him ask questions. Hmm, could could this be? So he makes this statement. Hey, we know you're from God because if, if you weren't, you wouldn't be able to do these things. He makes this statement. And, and Jesus replies with something that seems totally disconnected from the statement that Nicodemus just made. He, he goes deeper into this realm of, of wisdom that is it's more complex and deep and rich than anything that Nicodemus had ever known before. He talks about being born again. And of course, Nicodemus, blinders on, you know, narrow box thinking, says, how can, how can this be? He's a literalist. Jesus, how can you be born again? How can somebody who's old go back into them? It's impossible. Can't happen. And Jesus says, you have to be born of the water and the spirit. What? And Jesus gets pretty direct with Nicodemus, calls him out. You call yourself Israel's teacher. You're a smart guy. You say you know the scriptures, and yet you don't understand what I'm talking about. Do you need to go back to 101? So that's kind of the context that we, that we get to. And we get to this most famous verse in the Bible, the one that we see, you know, on sports figures and their eye black and around sports arenas and at various places and on bumper stickers. And, and sometimes I, I, I understand what maybe the, the thought is behind that, but sometimes maybe it trivializes what we're talking about. That people will see that and just, oh, that's one of those Jesus freaks. But this is the gospel in miniature. The, the whole gospel message is in verse 16, and I would say 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Somebody better say amen. Amen. I think that we can maybe make sense of this whole conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus if we start there and work backwards. Jesus gets around to telling Nicodemus that God is love. That's the point. God is love. Not that God loves once in a while or, or when he feels like it or when we do things to deserve his love. No, God is love. 
Not God loves, God is love. He's not an abstract principle, kind of like the Greeks would think. He takes on a more Hebrew understanding of, the, of, of deity and, and somebody who is dynamic and who, who acts. To say that God is love is the equivalent of saying that God loves, because that's what he knows. That's, that's what he is. That's his very being. And he loves for our well-being. He loves and it's open and accessible for everybody. It's not hard to find. And God demonstrates his love to humanity, to you, to, to me. He, he gave, G-A-V-E, he gave his one and only son out of love. And, and here's where, working backwards, here's where Jesus says, he, he, he makes this statement, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So there's this story uh, back in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9 or 10 or something like that. And the people are out in the wilderness making their way from Egypt to the, to the promised land and and there's snakes in the camp, and the snakes are, are biting the people, and people are dying. They pray, and <clears throat> God says, okay, I'm going to do this for you. Take and uh, make a bronze image of a snake, wrap it around a pole, and, and hold it up. So when people are bitten by a snake, all they have to do is look at the bronze snake, and they will live. So Jesus makes this comparison. The Son of Man is going to, the same thing is going to happen. So he, Jesus is pointing forwards to the time where he will be crucified, that he will be lifted up. And through that, when people turn their eyes to Jesus, they will have the ability to experience life. They won't die. Jesus is kind of unpacking the things that Nicodemus had, had overlooked or misunderstood, or he knew it was there somewhere back in these pages, but ah, it didn't make too much sense. That's just a point in history in the past, and that, that was good and all, but it doesn't, doesn't mean anything for us. Now, and Jesus is making a connection. No, it's going to be like this. All you have to do is believe, he tells Nicodemus, in God's Messiah. All you have to do is turn and look and believe that I'm your salvation that I can save you, that I can bring you, provide for you new life. Look, look to me and live. Don't look to the way you've been living, the things you've been practicing. Those things aren't going to save you. Look to me and, and I will be the one. So we might ask, well, what does this love look like? And uh, a little bit earlier in our service, we, we took a look at 1 John. If you, if you still have your Bibles, flip over to 1 John. These are really good verses. Uh, 1 John chapter 4. And it uh, goes like this in uh, verses 9, 9 to 12. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You ever want to know what a definition of love is? It's right here. It says, verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So you want a good definition of what love's look, love looks like. If you, have a, if you have your core guide, take it out, write this down on the front. This is love. There's four parts to it. Love is choosing to act. You have to make a choice. God makes a choice to love us. God is love. So love is, number one, it's, it's choosing to act, but it goes further than that. Love is choosing to act. And the second thing is in the best interest of somebody else in the best interest of another. You, you lay aside your own priorities and, and desires and, and you look to the other person and what they need in the moment and you respond to that. And so God loves us. He chooses to love us and he looks out for our best interest. He recognizes that, you know, they're kind of a sinful people and rebellious and they're going against everything that I've been trying to teach them all the way along you know what? They really deserve death because they broke that covenant we made. But that's not what's best for them. What's best for them would be to re-enter into a relationship with me where I could love them and show them the right way. So God chooses to love in the best interest of another, which happens to be us. And number three, whether they deserve it or not, we don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn his grace and his favor and his forgiveness. It's a free gift. And number four, even if it costs you, cost God his only son. Sometimes when we reach out in love, we have to give of ourselves, give of our time, give of our resources, give, of, give up our personal selfish desires. We, we might even have to sacrifice our own image or credibility so that we can minister to somebody and show somebody else God's love. Love is choosing to act in the best interest of another whether they deserve it or not, even if it costs you. This is what God's love looks like. And God demonstrates his love for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? John 3.16, so we would not perish. Now, that's where we have, we run into a little bit of difficulty with that word these days. Victor and Nicodemus did not believe that they would perish. And there's lots of people out there that don't believe that, that, they're, that they will perish. They don't believe in hell. But, but God says that we are destined to perish if we do not believe in his son, Jesus. I know we don't, we don't like that idea. I don't want to perish. That doesn't sound good. But that's not, it's not popular thought these days. We don't like the idea of being held accountable for our actions. We don't, we don't want to hear about punishment. We don't, we don't like to think that there are consequences. We don't want to accept that there are consequences to our choices and our behavior, let alone eternal consequences to our choice choices and behaviors. So our society, we kind of just push that idea over to the side and 
we just rather sit over here. Yeah, God is love. Hmm, I like that. Hmm, that parish thing. Ah, it's not going to happen. God is, he's love. Popular thought these days teaches that in the end, God is just going to open the door to heaven and let the floodgates and everybody's in. That's kind of popular theology these days. God is love. God is love. Absolutely. Yes. There's this other side, and they're held in tension with one another. God is righteous. God is justice. And these two are held in tension, and and he can reconcile them together, and they are reconciled together in the person that he, he gave in Jesus so that we might recognize that there is accountability. We will have to answer for our lives. But even though this verdict over here would say guilty and we would go over here and perish, if we look to Jesus for our salvation, then there is forgiveness and God takes care of that out of his love and we can step over here. That's what John 3.16 is, is telling us. That's not good enough for some people. Because I hear all the time, well, you know, I'm a good person. I, I really am a good person. N- Nicodemus believed that he was born into the right family. He was a, a child of Abraham. And because he was in the right family, that, you know, in the end, it was all going to work out. So his focus really was trying to focus in and follow all of the rules for the most part. And, you know, at least the really big ones, I get those right. So I'm in. Victor, you know, Dave, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. His mind, I'm in. Neither of them believed that they needed anybody to save them. They didn't think that they were lost. So why would they need somebody to point out the right direction if they didn't think that they were lost? I don't need a savior. Our world, we tend to think that we can save ourselves through finances and science and technology and uh, medicine and, you know, networks of friends, military, whatever it is, we figure we can save ourselves, so I'm, I'm good. All I have to do is be a good person. If I push back on that, I don't, have, I don't hear from people that they have a problem with Jesus. They think he's a good teacher, but they really don't think that they need him in their life for any particular reason. I'm, I'm good. That's what Vic and Nick had to say. But how do you decide? How do you decide if you're good enough? Right? If there's not an absolute moral truth, then everything else would be Subjective, right? You'd get in, you'd, you'd just default into this subjective morality. And it, it would shift based on your mood of the day, based on the other people that you were around. Because you could be in one group of people and, and they could just be rotten, evil, doing horrible things. And you might think, compared to these folks, I'm good. I'm in. But as you're 
position in life changes uh, or the circumstances of your life change, well, hey, well, I'm with these friends now, and, you know, we're going to decide that we're going to decide. Did you hear that? We're going to decide. Not, I read this in God's truth that he gives us, but ah, we're going to decide what's right. And so it becomes very subjective. Truth becomes, you know, uh, whatever it is in the moment. Hmm. Remember the Ten Commandments? Uh, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Can, do you know them all? You didn't think there'd be a quiz, did you? What's one of them? Somebody, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Right. So there's, there's uh, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, honor your mother and father, you know, honor the Lord your God, right? No idols. All, you know, we could go through that list. There's, there's 10, God's top 10, if you will. Most people would acknowledge that much of what's on that list is relevant to them. Yeah, you shouldn't kill people. No, you shouldn't lie. But they will, they will make it subjective. Well, you know, a little white lie is that's not going to hurt anybody. But I don't read that. In an absolute truth, it says do not lie. So a white lie is okay, but, you know, there's, there's another kind of lie or... And Jesus has some words for this. If you, uh, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, he, he has some specific things. He, he kind of he amplifies the Ten Commandments in, in two really specific ways. And he talks about murder. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, you remember what he tells them? He says, if you harbor anger in your heart against a brother or sister, you have committed murder. How many of you have been angry before? Everybody, right? We fail the Ten Commandment test. And he goes on, he says, on adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks on another person with lust in their heart has already committed adultery with that person. How many of you had an impure thought? Most of you. How many of you have disrespected your parents in the past? How many have let a little white lie slip out in the moment because of you thought that you would have to cover your tracks and make yourself look better? How many of you cheated before? You know, we could go down the list and, and it comes across as moral absolute truth in the Bible, but in our world, we, we don't want to make ourselves look bad. If you have kids or have been around kids, what happens when they do something wrong? They lie about it to cover their tracks. Maybe they go and hide, right? I, I don't want to own that. I, I, I know I've done wrong. Maybe they blame somebody else. Oh, it was their fault. Really, they made me do it. You know, here, we're famous. Right oh, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You made you do it. You see, God creates us in his own image. And part of his image is this love 
endless justice. We know what's right, and we know what's wrong. There's something deep inside. There's this echo of God in our lives that just keeps reverberating, and we deep down have an idea of what's right and wrong. And, and when we fracture one of those things, it just there's this twinge in our soul that says, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Subjective truth isn't going to stand up to the scrutiny of God. Nobody passes the righteous test on their own. It's impossible. None of us measure up to God's righteousness. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and we know it. And so when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, that's our sentence. Because we've broken the will of, we've broken the law of God. So on our own, we will perish. But, but, because God is love, He's provided this way for us to move from perishing over here to being able to experience eternal or everlasting life in Him. We do need the help. God loves you so much that he provided the answer. Can you imagine what Nicodemus was thinking at this point? He had spent his whole life, whole life, trying to learn and to follow 613 rules. That's what was in Torah, 613 rules. And then he hears Jesus tell him it's not about the rules. And he watches Jesus the day before come in, turn everything that he had lived his life to protect and uphold and build. He, Jesus came in and turned it upside down. Can you imagine what Nicodemus was thinking? How would you feel if somebody came and told you that everything you dedicated your life had missed the mark completely? You might feel like a fool. He heard Jesus say, just believe. Just believe that I am the Messiah and you will be saved. He made, Jesus made it sound so simple. Jesus had taken something that Nicodemus thought was so complex complicated, 613 rules to follow, and then they wrote rules to, be, to interpret the rules so they would make sure that they didn't you know, accidentally fracture any of these 600. How did Jesus take something that was so complicated and make it not complicated? How did, how did he do that? How could he... Nicodemus made his life in all of the complications. His whole religion was based on the complications of following Torah, and now Jesus said, it's not about the rules, Nicodemus. It's about love. It's not about the rules. It's about love. It was love that would save him. And it had been all along, and he had been misinterpreting the words that were in front of him, the scriptures that he dedicated his life to study and know and to teach. It's all there. God is love, and he reaches out in mercy to humanity, and Nicodemus totally misread that 
as I got to follow all the rules. I have to be a good person. And Jesus said, it's not about that. It's not about that. It's about love. See, God loves you, and God forgives you, and he's done all of the work for you, and all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's it, period, paragraph. That's what Jesus means when he said, you will be born again. And then he uses these words about being born of water and, and of the Spirit. And, you know, we think about water. There's debate over this, but I think it's an image of, of, of being immersed or sprinkled in the waters of baptism. And you're, you kind of enter into publicly into the family of God in that moment. It's this public declaration that you've said, I believe. And then Jesus says, and you have to be born of the Spirit. See, when, when you accept Jesus to come and help you from not perishing, to come over here to, to being saved and experiencing this eternal life, which begins right now, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and enters you and empowers you and gives you life just like it had done for Jesus. See, at the end, after Jesus is crucified and dead and buried and he's resurrected and he appears to his disciples, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks, he, he appears to his disciples and he breathes the Holy Spirit on them. The word is ruach, or that's the Hebrew. And in the Greek, it's pneuma, which is wind or spirit. See, Jesus, what's, what's been inside Jesus, he now exhales and blows into us so that what's inside Jesus can now be inside us. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to understand you got to be born of water and you're born of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes in and empowers you to live and transform you in a, in a new way. And that's where it comes all the way around to full circle. The rules are there for a reason. See, God loves us and makes a path for us to be able to have relationship with him when we acknowledge that we are dead lost in our sin, that on our own, you know what, we're going to perish. God makes this way. He loves us. And because he loves us, we ought to thank him and, and love him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and your neighbor as yourself. So when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it empowers you to be able to love God and love other people with your whole heart. And so these laws, these rules that have been in place were the, way, the, the things that God had, had put out there to help teach us what that looks like. How do I love God? Here's some ideas. How do I really love other people when they just drive me nuts and they, they hurt me and they, they lie about me and they, they cheat? And how do I love somebody like that? Well, you know what? Practice these. And it will teach you how to love God and love other people. I know we're, at, we're about out of time. And I could keep going. I told you there's three or four sermons in this. Maybe we close this way. I think that somebody here really needed to hear this today. Opening yourself, letting your guard down, 
allowing yourself to be forgiven, allowing yourself to be loved by somebody else may be the hardest part. We get caught up in ourselves pretty quickly. And we build these walls up and we try and self-insulate and we think we're right and, and, and we're just confused that way. And letting go of that may be the hardest part. Allowing those walls to crumble and letting God's love penetrate your heart may be the hardest thing. Maybe believing that all the bad stuff that you've done, whatever it is, that, that God says, I forgive you. Maybe it's just accepting that God will forgive a person even like you. That may be the hardest part. This, this may be totally new information for you today. Maybe it's stirred up a bunch of questions. Can I, can I just encourage you to ask your questions? I'm always available to talk to you. So is Pastor Trent and Pastor Ken. We'd love to share a conversation with you. If you have questions, that's why we're here. Maybe you've heard this before. That you know, maybe you think, ah, but I just don't, I don't get it yet. You're still on that journey towards the light coming on. Um, this, this is a safe place to explore questions that you have. Ask them. Maybe you have been traveling with Jesus for a long time. You believed a long time ago that Jesus was your Savior. I, I hope you haven't tuned this out. Because verse 8 maybe applies to you. It talks about the wind blowing wherever it pleases. Nicodemus had fallen into a pattern where it was about following the rules in a very specific way. And for those of us who have traveled with Jesus for a long time, we're at risk of letting our faith grow stale. We just do the same old, same old. And we don't open ourselves or allow ourselves to think that maybe there's something different that the Holy Spirit would like to do in our lives. This word, brothers and sisters, is for us, too. To recognize that God is this dynamic force that's out there that loves us, fills us with his, with his spirit, so that our lives can be transformed, not in the past, but continually, day by day. There's a word for everybody in this text. And I hope that you'll listen to the Holy Spirit when he speaks. Would you stand for prayer?